Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR and your host for today's show. Good morning, Brad. How are you doing? Hey, good morning, Greg. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty yeah. good. Hey, I was thinking uh, the other night about um, something that you do regularly that maybe our audience does not know about you. We're oftentimes on the road, right? And you always bring your lunch with you. And I almost never bring my lunch. I'm like always running behind. So I got to buy lunch, but you always bring your lunch and it's always the same thing. What is that? It is. And I have to admit, I, I don't change it a lot. Right. So it, and it's pretty consistent and it, it it's basically a, a basis of venison and beans, <laughs> which sounds like a deadly combination, but it's really good. And then there's always other stuff in there too, right? Stuff that you kind of yep. glean from various places. Something from the garden, something for forage. So oftentimes, like right now, garlic mustard was just in season a while ago. I have, I've had several lunches with that in it. Uh, golden oyster mushrooms have been prolific yeah, here in Southern found Wisconsin. A lot of those. Yep. They've been, I've been putting those in. But you name it, anything if it's in season has the potential to make it into my lunch. And and always venison. There's... And a basis of venison, no matter what, just because we got to eat deer. So why do you eat the same thing every day? So that, you know, that's a good question. So <laughs> I, not one I ask myself often, but it's a good question. And, and I do it for a couple of reasons. One is I like to know where my lunch came from. So I really want it if it's foraged or from the garden or other places, I think that's great. Okay. Um, but it, it might be good for me too. So for me, even though I run all the time, I have high cholesterol, so mm -hmm. yeah, I can so control I. my cholesterol. I can modify my diet and help to control my cholesterol. Mm -hmm. That would explain all of the fiber that you're putting into this thing. And I'm putting in enough fiber to, I don't know, like, yeah, yeah there's a lot. I, I don't know. There's a good analogy for that, but yeah, I'm putting in a ton of fiber. As I've said, uh, I used to have a cousin and every Thanksgiving meal, they would bring a giant pot of homemade beans and he'd say, there's a lot of potential in this pot. <laughs> yeah, my lunches are full of potential then. Well, maybe someday you'll convince me to try this, hey. this dish, but I have not yet. Yeah, you and actually I would not don't prejudge it. It's 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 different every time. It's it's if I eat it, it's got to be good. You can see where I'm going with this, maybe, and that is, yeah. is you make this dish every week. It's always a little bit different, so you modify it depending on what ingredients you have, and uh, you're always, though, looking for that fiber. So I'm going to call it your fiber-enhanced cooking, mm -hmm. and that idea of modifying and enhancing fiber is right on track for today. No, we're not going to talk about cholesterol and fiber, but... <laughs> Because we're going to be talking about carbon-enhanced uh -huh. silviculture today. And as you may know, this is part two of a series that we've been doing on forest carbon. Um, last uh, month, we talked with Ali Kasiba from Vermont. And today, we will be speaking with Todd Antel. I know you know Todd, climate adaptation specialist and Luke Nave, research scientist, both with the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, or NIACS. And so that's going to be a really great conversation today about how do we modify and enhance our silviculture for carbon. 
And I also should mention, I want everyone to remember that continuing ed credits are available for this episode and all episodes uh, of Silvacast. So please remember to visit our website at uwsp.edu backslash WFC. And Greg, if this lasts long enough, I'll have lunch for you. Why don't we give it to Todd and Luke and first and see how they enjoy it? You can tell them, you can just feel the cholesterol being pulled from your system. Todd Antle, Luke Nave, welcome to Silvacast. Hi. Oh, <laughs> great to be here, wherever here is. Yeah, well, yeah, wherever here is is a good way to put it. So as you know, last month, we had a great conversation with Ali Kosiva from Vermont, who helped us bring us up to speed on the basics of carbon and forest. And today we're really going to get into the weeds. I don't know, maybe there's some kind of forest metaphor there, like get into the trees or something. Uh, we have lots of questions for you guys on how we can maybe think about our civil cultural practice and think about how we might alter them to sequester and store more carbon. But first... Brad um, and Todd and Luke, welcome. For our audience who may not be familiar with your work, could you just tell us a little bit about maybe where you work and what you do? So I am Todd Antel, and I am a climate adaptation specialist with the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science. We are based out of Houghton, Michigan, um, but I work from, uh, from the Northeast. I am currently in Portland, Maine. And so my work with NIACS, as we're known, is to help coordinate our climate change, our climate response framework activities in the New England and Northern New York region. And I also work with Luke on our uh, carbon management work, uh, kind of throughout our footprint, which covers um, Maine to Minnesota, down to Missouri, across to Maryland, so kind of the 20 states of the Northeast and Midwest. Hey, I'm Luke Nave. I'm a research scientist, also with NIAX. Um, all I really want to be is a forest ecologist, but the carbon cycle won't leave me alone, or I won't leave it alone. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm an avid participant in the carbon cycle and a carbon cycle researcher. Um, most of what I do is uh, for NIAX anyway, I use data that already exists from soil survey databases, from the Forest Service Forest Inventory and Analysis Program to assess how management affects carbon stocks and cycling in forests. And I also do a good bit of site-based research on forest ecology and management throughout Michigan, primarily the, the Upper Peninsula and the Northern Lower Peninsula. I like that, that uh, we're all part of that carbon cycle too, so. We participate in the end, whether we like it or not. <laughs> <That's right>. Exactly. <laughs> dust to dust or whatever that, uh, however that goes. Yeah. Um, well, one reason I know Brad and I wanted to do a show on forest carbon, maybe not uh, human carbon, uh, is because we both feel a little bit behind the curve sometimes when this is all being talked about. You know, as you know, carbon is this huge issue now within forest management, but I know personally, I don't always feel prepared to talk about some of the elements of forest carbon. And uh, from a field forester's perspective, I'm really interested in the silvicultural tactics that we can use to maybe enhance forest carbon. 
And I know that we had talked about this earlier. I know that it's there's not always clear answers to all of this, but a discussion around this, I think, is really important. And just thinking about what maybe we can add to our civil culture toolbox to help us uh, sequester and store more carbon in the forest. So maybe that would be a good place to start here is talking about looking at maybe a series of silvicultural tactics and how these might impact uh, carbon in the forest. And you guys can help us with that. Mm -hmm. So Brad, do you wanna start off with maybe one of those tactics? Sure, well, maybe we could start at the, the basics. So uh, oftentimes we're looking at a system, we're looking at objectives and we're looking at even versus uneven age systems. Uh, are there carbon implications to going even age versus uneven age? Yeah, I can start off with some of that. And, you know, I recognize that Luke spends a lot of time looking at data and I spend a lot of time talking and waving my hands. And so we're, we're, we make a good team because I think Luke can kind of back me up with what the data tells us and, and, uh, or, or tell me when I'm, when I'm wrong. Yeah. Or but, not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, this is, it's, it's a question that comes up a lot. It's one that in, in a practical sense may be kind of hard to compare apples to apples just because, you know, even age and uneven age systems can be very different in terms of their species composition or their age, um, just given that uneven age systems kind of develop more over time. Um, but if you kind of remove all those other variables and you could just kind of look at kind of the same forest stand just under these two different conditions, generally speaking, I think of uneven age systems as being able to kind of pack more carbon in there because you have more vertical structure. You've got a more developed understory layer, a mid canopy layer, and then your overstory. And, and so you can just kind of think about like niche partitioning in an ecosystem, that sort of thing. It just kind of these components of the forest are kind of fitting together more like a, like a puzzle where they're jigsaw puzzle, where the pieces are, are fitting together. Um, and that just allows you to kind of have more carbon existing in, in the system relative to an even age system where, you know, the, uh, the tree canopies are all kind of bumping into each other. They're competing for all the same resources. Um, and you might just have less carbon in the system because of that. Yeah, it's interesting. So thinking about that, if we went to a uneven age system, then oftentimes we're looking at, say, an area regulation for the stand or maybe a size class distribution if we think about single tree selection. So storing more carbon, would that would that have impacts or, or thinking about including carbon as a part of this, would that have impacts on this distribution of say like ages or sizes within the stands that we might find desirable? Luke, you want to talk about that or did you, you kick that over to me? You're the default on this, Todd. I'll, I'll, I'll back clean up or, or throw a wrinkle in the works after some of year, but I, I really like what you said about, and I like the consistency of terms here. We're talking about storing carbon in the forest. I think it's important to keep that straight. We're not talking about sequestering the rate that it's pulling it in or what's happening outside the forest, but I'm right on board with what you've been saying. Yeah. So I, I think gosh, I'm, I'm a little bit more on shaky ground because I don't, 
think about here with, with this topic, I don't think about sort of the age class distribution as much, you know, kind of getting into those weeds and thinking about how a field forester works. But yeah, I think that there's, there's opportunity here for, um, for kind of manipulating uh, with an approach like single tree selection, um, that, that distribution and, you know, um, creating just depending upon what that distribution looks like, kind of creating opportunities for more carbon stored in some of those uh, smaller size class distributions. If that, you know, is, is kind of what's needed to, to kind of get the desired age class distribution, you know, you, you have a little bit more, I think, play in, in terms of what you can manipulate and and yeah so I, I think that there's there's a way that you can kind of work that into um, how you manage for carbon because I know Greg we talk about it oftentimes where you can vary the 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 target size that you might use for like the maximum you would want in that stand and so it's kind of comforting that we don't have straight answers because oftentimes even with normal questions in forestry we don't have straight answers but here maybe, maybe something, and I just to bounce this off you guys. So we might, would we want to include maybe uh, a larger portion of large trees within that stand? If we were thinking about un or single tree selection? Yeah, I think that um, there's some pretty good, uh, there's some pretty good science there to out there to, to show that a lot of the carbon is stored in the, those largest diameter trees. If you're kind of looking at carbon, stocks on a per acre basis, mm-hmm. um, you know, sort of depending upon what the system is and, and how, how big some of those trees will get, you can, you can have upwards of 90% of your carbon in the largest trees. And so, you know, that's a good way to, um, you know, if you're, if you're increasing your maximum uh, diameters, uh, that's a good way to 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 get more carbon in there. Um, you know, you're storing uh, relatively less carbon in those smaller diameter classes. So, Luke, I thought you brought up an interesting point, and we went over with Allie that difference between storage and sequestration. And when we're talking about these even and uneven age systems, I don't want to totally discount even age systems as well, because wouldn't that fit into this? development of younger forests that are actually sequestering more. So they've, they may not be storing more at this point, but they're sequestering more. Or should we be thinking about this at a larger scale? I don't know. I think scale is very important. And that's why I'm, I'm glad your question here relates to silvicultural systems rather than an individual stand. There, there's some connotation in there that you're thinking on a longer time scale. This isn't just one entry we're talking about. By definition, an uneven age silvicultural system, you're thinking on a longer time scale that uneven age doesn't begin to develop in a lake states forest until you're 80, 100 years old. Um, even age is kind of by definition a shorter time scale that we think about 60 year rotation, 40 year rotation if you're on a good site. And spatial scale, um, if you're in a position where you're, you're managing at a landscape scale, it makes a lot of sense to have a diversified portfolio of of stand age distribution of structure. Foresters have known that for a long time. Carbon is just another reason to do so. Um, there is still a lot of evidence that suggests that the younger stands do sequester carbon more rapidly than old stands. 
Um, that's not true everywhere, but there's other good reasons to have that mixture. I think that was a th that was a theme that came out in our conversation with Allie too about carbon is one element and we're managing for lots of different objectives and um, and a lot of those are compatible with each other. Yeah. Another thought about this: I'm I'm sitting at my field site, the University of Michigan Biological Station, where we have a chrono sequence of forest stands, ages ranging from five years to well, very uneven aged and, and hundreds of years old that we've studied for a long time. And if you look purely at carbon storage within the forest, well, of course, the most carbon storage is in the very old uneven aged stands. And in the last five years, about half of that carbon has gone to the ground as beech bark disease has completely eliminated our canopy co-dominant. And if we had put all our eggs in that basket in a management sense, if let's just manage everything for uneven age, maximum carbon stocks, we would have a big mess on our hands. Um, you know, what the future of this forest, and I'm speaking of, is in question. What's going to comprise the, the new dominance? Um, yeah, so carbon stocks, um, maximizing carbon stocks, I don't think should be anybody's only goal. Uh, if they have the ability to think more widely and, and over a longer time scale. What happens next? Trees don't grow forever. Something gets them. Mm -hmm. Windstorms, pests, age alone. Yeah, and I think on that, on that note of, of just kind of recognizing the importance of having the balance between younger, uh, younger aged forests and, and older, more mature forests, you know, there's, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Just purely from a, from a carbon sink carbon source standpoint at a broad spatial scale there's been there's been a fair amount of modeling work just kind of looking at you know what what is what would happen if we eliminated or reduced the amount of of forest harvest that we we did at at a at a broad scale and a lot of the results that i've seen from that work suggests that if you just let things get older and you're not kind of creating opportunities for new forests to regenerate eventually because of what was Luke was just talking about, you know, something's always going to get a forest and they don't grow forever. Um, at, at a very broad scale, think about, you know, the state of Wisconsin, for example, that the state can turn from a strong carbon sink to, to ultimately to a carbon source as, as forests age. So you might have a lot of carbon in your forest, but they're just not taking in more carbon than they're emitting when you let everything get old and you're not providing those opportunities for regeneration. Of course, when things do, when trees fall down from wind or, you know, a disease, um, you know, natural regeneration is going to happen, of course, but management can have, um, can kind of direct how that happens and and we can have a little bit more control over what species are regenerating and and also just um taking advantage of those opportunities um you know to to kind of create regeneration before the kind of the slow decline and death happens um you know create create an opportunity for for uh regeneration to happen kind of at a stand scale or something like that that, that may be more robust uh, sequestration following that. Yeah, and, I, and kind of what I'm hearing you guys say is maybe that it's important maybe to think about that balance. So in these uneven age stands, you know, you have that young 
kind of that young component all the time and that old. And so just being really cognizant of that balance that you have between those and then maybe adding these considerations over time. Greg, it reminded me too, um, what, from what you guys just said, that remember that conversation we had with Ralph Nyland, where he talked about paying attention to the growth rates of the smallest trees in the stand as that indication of whether you actually have an uneven age situation or, or something like that. And that feels to me, it's one more reason for foresters to look at those smaller age or smaller size classes in say a single tree selection system, where if maybe they're not getting the growth rates, they think maybe they, they might have to adjust that. It might be for, for carbon purposes. And that balance, um, Brad, across the whole landscape. So right. here we get back to that scale thing about balance at that stand level, as you're saying, and growth rates, but then balance across that whole landscape in these various disturbance factors that Todd's talking about and so on. Hey, let's, let's jump into even deeper into the weeds, although, or trees or whatever it is, Brad, I don't know what it is. I always have questions about the carbon implications of thinning because I hear different things like about holding higher densities within stands or keeping lower densities and keeping trees growing uh, rapidly. So I guess I have a lot of questions around that. And I'm wondering, uh, is there a carbon benefit to thinning forests um, and trees? Um, and what is that? Um, and also, is there a loss in carbon doing that as well? Thinning is, is one of those fun things to talk about, I think, from a carbon perspective, because there's a lot, of, a lot of different things going on. And, and, and thinning isn't just one, you know, there isn't just one single way to, to do a thinning. So you could, you could kind of imagine different ways that you could implement an intermediate treatment for uh, or a thinning um, that might result in more benefits for carbon. Um, and you could also think about different conditions, different stand conditions, different soil types in which it would be appropriate to do one or the other. So yeah, with that, I guess I, I, can, I can say for certain we know, yeah, thinning, there's a, there's a loss in carbon when, when you do a thinning because you're removing trees from a, from a stand, whether uh, you know, you're doing like a pre-commercial thinning or a commercial thinning, you're, you're cutting trees. And so that's going to have an impact on, on certainly on live tree carbon stocks uh, and, and usually total ecosystem carbon stocks as well. But the purpose, of course, of, of thinning is to kind of select the best trees um, that have the most potential to grow with the reduction of competition from, from its neighbors. And, and that bump in tree growth is enhancing, it's, it's sequestration, that's enhancing the sequestration of those remaining trees. So, so that, from a carbon viewpoint, that's kind of the benefit of, of thinning, or at least one of the benefits of thinning. And, and there's, been some, uh, there's been some work to, to show that depending upon how you do that thinning, you can recover that carbon relatively quickly. You know, we have to recognize carbon cycling is, takes place over long time frames. And so we're talking about a decade or, or more to recover the carbon that you removed. Um, but if you compare, uh, in some of the work that, that I'm thinking of was, was done on 
uh, in Pennsylvania on the Kane Experimental Forest uh, by a researcher named Chaley Hoover with the Forest Service. And, and they did some really neat work looking at if you thin from below, so you're, you're kind of taking out the smaller trees relative to a control where you do no thinning, that within about 25 years, you, you've gotten all that carbon back. Essentially, that thinned stand has as much or more carbon as, a, as the unthinned stand. Um, but if you take out some of those dominant trees, so you're thinning from above, uh, it takes much longer uh, to regain that carbon. And, and you may never have more carbon in that stand relative to an unthinned. So that gives you a little bit of, of, a, of a window into kind of how you can do thinning differently and kind of what the implications might look like for, for carbon. The, I guess the other thing I'll say is that thinning is an opportunity to kind of uh, alter the trajectory of the stand in terms mm -hmm. of the species composition as well. So depending upon what you select for or against, what you remove, can have a big impact on what the future of that composition of that stand looks like. And, and if you're selecting for species that we anticipate are going to do well in future that might have more frequent or more intense droughts, you know, you, you might expect or you might imagine that those, uh, those trees are going to grow better. They're going to sequester carbon faster than maybe selecting for a tree like uh, maybe a more northern adapted uh, to a cool, cool climate that might have a harder time, but might be more susceptible to drought impacts and maybe pests or something like that. Obviously, that that forest might look very different from a carbon perspective uh, if you are selecting for trees that aren't going to do as well into the future. I would imagine that you could tweak that composition in a lot of ways to the benefit of carbon. As you said, Todd, climate adapted species, but then also longer lived species, species that don't necessarily are gonna have obvious insect disease issues. Like Luke, you mentioned the beach issue and just thinking about that long-term growth and health of that stand while you're selecting those trees. Exactly, yeah, and you just recognize that you know, there is going to be an immediate impact, there's going to be a loss, but, but we have to be thinking on those long time scales and, and recognizing that uh, what matters is, is, you know, what happens in the years and decades following the, the implementation of that. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I wanted to mention, Greg, is you, you kind of picked this question to us with, uh, you know, the, the recognition that You've heard a lot of things in terms of, of maybe thinning more or thinning less and what's the right thing to do. Um, maybe you didn't ask it in that, in that regard, but, or in that way, but I, I, I think that that is kind of a question I do hear is, you know, should I thin more or less? And I think the answer to that speaks to a lot of those site specific con conditions. You know, what, what can the, the site sort of maintain in terms of 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 uh standing or in terms of stocking and you know a good site with a high site index you could probably maintain higher stocking levels and have kind of a target basal area that's higher than a site that might be more say drought prone um maybe a you know sandy 
outwash soils that might be nutrient poor, those, those are sites that are gonna be harsher and, and you probably wanna thin those maybe a little bit uh, heavier to um, just to reduce the competition for, for moisture. And, and so I think that there's, there's also that consideration when thinking about how to implement the thinning. I like how you mentioned site, Todd, and, and how different sites and different starting points in terms of what is on the site might point to different uh, interventions as far as thinning goes. If, if you have species that are not well adapted to the site, um, boy, it might make sense to start transitioning that site towards more future climate adapted species. If you have um, you know, white pine that's uh, got, you know, no true leader because it's been weevil killed, um, prone to ice and storm damage. Well, you know, maybe it's time to get that out of there and let the, the understory that's coming up underneath that get established. Um, the starting point matters in terms of what you remove and how often you remove it. And ultimately the time scale over which you're thinking about carbon benefits or losses. You might be taking carbon off the site as wood right now, but you might in 50 years actually be ahead of where you would have been if you direct that site in a more productive trajectory um, by removing some carbon now, you might wind up with more carbon on the site in the future. And there's also a threshold in terms of when you're thinking about the short term, you know, there's a threshold below which the ecosystem will not, uh, its sequestration rate won't change. You know, if you have small gaps, the, the neighbors of those gaps will be very glad to grow into them and harvest that additional sunlight and grow additional wood. Um, and there may be a level of removal um, below which you have the atmosphere wouldn't know the difference. You may have reduced standing stocks of trees on your site, but you only took 25% of the basal area out. And that left 75% of the trees that were still able to maintain that same carbon sink strength uh, that the forest had before. I, I'm kind of comforted by having no, like, like the answers are have a lot of tentacles to them because that's the way it is in most of what we do in forestry. So I, I kind of like that. So, so thinking about this, um, so we, so we talked about the thinning, maybe that, maybe that corollary here would be for even age with rotation. So I've heard people say, yeah, if we're going to sequester carbon, maybe we should just extend these rotations. Um, it sounds like maybe some of the same considerations would come into play there as well, depending upon species, things like that. Certainly, I think that Luke's example of uh, what's happening at some of their older stands at the University of Michigan biological stations, just a, a perfect example of, of, you know, sort of what can go wrong and what you want to, what you'd want to avoid for an extended rotation. So, you know, I, I think about it from, you know, from a climate change, climate risk, climate vulnerability, whatever you want to say. You know, those places where there's high risk of, of things kind of going sideways on you and in terms of tree mortality, those those probably aren't the right places to think about a, an extended rotation. Um, probably better to, to, as you know, Luke mentioned with uh, weevil damaged white pine, kind of remove that material out of there, harvest it, because um, it's, it's going to be prone to damage in the future. And, and sort of restart the system. 
And, and I think those ideas really apply perfectly to thinking about extended rotations as well. You know, we, we know natural mortality happens. It's, it's a, you know, kind of a, a typical uh, or a common thing. Um, but as long as that's happening at kind of just a, a natural baseline level, extending a rotation uh, or delaying a harvest entry in an uneven age system, those those sorts of things, you know, just allow for the forest to to continue to gain more carbon over time. And and as long as the the risks of any kind of um, large scale or or widespread uh, carbon losses or or uh, tree mortality, um, as long as the risks are fairly low, extended rotations can be uh, a good way to kind of increase our landscape level uh, carbon stocks. Um, but, but any of those concerns for, for pests or disease or, or wind throw or ice damage, if, if there's any you know, reason to think that the risk might be elevated, I think that's probably an indication that, that extended rotation isn't gonna pay off uh, from a carbon standpoint. You know, I remember one topic from economics in college, and that was the, the concept of opportunity cost. Um, you know, and, and extended rotation gets you thinking about a future that you might not know about. Um, so one of the things that I would, I would really like to hear foresters talk about in terms of the things that foresters should consider, are what are not the ecological considerations? What are the economic considerations? If you're going to say, all right, we're going to let this northern hardwood stand go and go another 40 years, or you name the stand, what are markets going to do? What's accessibility to a mill going to do? Um, what will operators be prepared to deal with in terms of the, the size of the trees? I don't have the answers for that, but I, as an ecologist, I feel always compelled to point out the the human dimensions that I don't understand, but which are part of this calculation, especially when you're thinking over long timescales like that. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point, Luke. I and I, I know I've heard foresters talk about that as well. You know, if we extend this rotation and we end up having, you know, these really large diameter trees, can can the mill handle, you know, something that's know 30 inches diameter when they're used to you know taking 24 inch diameter trees and so that certainly is is a consideration um that we'll have to we'll have to kind of think about the infrastructure and 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 how we uh how we utilize all this material in, in the future what i hear both of you saying is that some of the considerations you make for extended rotation for carbon are very similar to other considerations that foresters make for extended rotations about, as you said, about long-term health of that stand, what's the site capabilities, what are the markets gonna do within that? So I guess that's, I don't know, maybe either frustrating or reassuring because you know, as a forester, I still need to consider all of those things when making that uh, prescription for that particular stand. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think uh, from a lot of ways you can think about carbon, it still comes down to um, carbon is, is, is wood in a lot, of, uh, a lot of ways. You can just kind of say, well, a lot of the same considerations apply. And, and, and I, I really hope that 
through these conversations that, that we're having about carbon management, we can just help foresters feel a little more comfortable in thinking that, you know, things that you think about on a day-to-day -day basis when you're thinking about how to how to write a management plan, what what civil cultural prescription applies. I mean, many of those considerations still apply here. Mm -hmm. And we're not really changing the the, the ground rules yeah. by just adding carbon in. Yeah, you know, and that's really that's so important, you know, because it's I think a lot of us, if we don't know about something, there might be a little bit of a fear factor involved, right? Like, like, oh, you know, like we're gonna do this and it's gonna change everything. And in, and I what I hear you saying is that, yeah, this is just one more consideration, but you already have a lot of consideration. So really it's just being intentional about it and making sure that it's consistent with what you're doing. Yeah, I think that some of it is is also just you know, maybe we add a, a few more pieces into into how we think about things, and that might include, you know, thinking about coarse woody debris in our forests, and and maybe a forester doesn't think as critically about how much uh, coarse woody debris is there, how many snags are standing, but maybe they do, because you know, they're also that's uh, important components of the forest for things like wildlife habitat, and so. You know, it just it kind of depends upon the perspective that the forester is coming from, but um, it it might just be you know kind of small tweaks. Well, that, you're kind of going in the direction I was thinking, Todd, because I was thinking about sort of another tactic, silviculturally, that I often hear from a carbon standpoint is that, and that is um, all these tactics around tree retention or reserves and how we might be able to tweak those. Um, I think included in that is probably, you know, snags and coarse woody debris as well. Is that a major tool that we can put in our toolbox to uh, increase, say, carbon storage within our stands is thinking carefully about tree retention? Do you want to chime in on this one or do you want me to? I'm happy. I'm happy playing second fiddle. I think we've, you know, we've got some practice with this. You're the, you're the expert for NIACs on this and I can back you up and, and, you know, throw my thoughts from the peanut gallery. That, no, right. that's our job, right. Lou. I'll get my chance when we talk about <laughs> soils, the, yeah, the other right. three fourths of ecosystem carbon. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a bump. <laughs> Well, and if we get to it, uh, and we and we and we start talking about afforestation, I, I, I think you have some things you can say too about that. Yeah. So for reserves, uh, reserves and retention, it's a it's definitely a an easy thing I think that we can tweak. We can um, we already in in a lot of prescriptions are are thinking about reserve trees. Um, or, you know, whether or not it's in patches or kind of more, more spread out uh, as single trees. But it's something that is, you know, a small tweak in, in a way. And anytime you're bumping up the number of reserve trees or the size of the reserves in a, in a, in a management plan, you are bumping up the carbon storage that's retained following implementation of a of a prescription so so that's a that's a good thing to do i think from a carbon perspective i think it's it's kind of a low-hanging fruit in a lot of ways because it isn't a major shift as long as you're still able to really meet your your civil cultural um, objectives being able to to 
kind of tweak what is is retained on the site is uh, is an easy way to do that. And um, and I, I think that there's also maybe a little a little bit of a twist that we could apply to that. Um, sometimes when we think about reserves or retention, you know, where the ultimate removal of of those trees um, as saw logs at some point in the future is you know sometimes still on the table and and so another way to to kind of think about that retention is kind of permanent retention or or you know identification of those trees as legacy trees uh, especially any trees that might you know kind of have some cavities in them obviously those things are going to be identified as good uh, good habitat uh, so we might want to keep those on site for other reasons uh, but they store a lot of carbon um, but just identifying some trees to to be permanently retained as as biological legacies on the site um, ultimately you know they may uh, be ultimately become snags but snags can remain for many many decades standing um, and and be you know uh, stored carbon or come down in a windstorm and and decompose but they there's still carbon stored on the site um, and so those things uh, can be can be really good uh, really good tactics but still you know recognizing there may be some economic trade-offs to doing some of that um, and that's why I think looking critically at you know where are where are some trees or what what trees can I pick out that may have lower value from an economic standpoint but high value from from a carbon or from a ha habitat standpoint those are good opportunities Todd you mentioned uh, aggregate retention are there benefits I know we talk about this from an ecological standpoint of benefits of retaining uh, patches of reserves, but from a carbon standpoint, would there be an advantage there in terms of, oh, I don't know, you're leaving um, an area that is undisturbed, for example, is there a carbon benefit to that? I, you know, I'm gonna interrupt Todd here because I have a thought about this. It, it just entered my mind, but we're talking entirely about how much reserve, like proportion of total or residual basal area, but how you configure that matters too. Um, and I'd, I'd like to encourage folks to think about how to map that pattern onto the site, how to work with the site. You know, in some cases, uh, larger aggregate patches might make sense. Maybe you think in terms of a shelter wood direction for things, if you're on a harsh site, you need some shading, some protection for the region. Other sites might be totally different. Suppose you've got upland northern hardwoods with vernal pools maybe there your retention is just increasing your buffer area you're you're working with the different ecosystem type and how you configure that retention um, other sites are you know prone to storm damage so if you just leave single trees standing they're only going to blow over um, maybe there the the retention could be a feathered edge with respect to the the the, the prevailing winds there's I, I'd encourage people to think about working with the site and how you retain, not just how much you retain. Yep, I think yeah, and I think the, the kind of the wind firmness of of the retention is a is is a big deal, and and I think that's a you know from that was where I was thinking, Luke. So you you kind of said everything I was going to say and more as usual, um, but yeah, I think it, from the 
standpoint of the permanence of that carbon in that's retained on the site, um, there's there's certainly some benefits to to aggregating. I'm I'm curious to pick your guys' brain about something I saw a couple of years ago. I was at a meeting, and there was a uh, chart from the U.S. Climate Alliance, and they showed that the the second largest potential carbon gain in Wisconsin was forest restocking. And I got the feeling that that might be related to open stands or things of that nature. Do you guys have, what would what would forest restocking look like in that situation? Maybe open stands, just kind of bringing them into production? I think about that from really the viewpoint that, you know, where there's sort of more degraded conditions and that has led to understocked uh, stands that that there's a real good opportunity there. Again, that could come from past storm damage with uh, you know without good regeneration. You know, herbivory is a big issue for a lot of our our northern forests, and so that you know the the understory and and having adequate regeneration to to uh, restart carbon sequestration and tree growth following uh, storm damage, you know, that might be hampered by all the deer that are, you know, munching all those, those baby trees. And so, yeah, I think restocking is, is, uh, I think, I think the opportunity there is, is really in those conditions um, where there just may not be adequate regeneration. I think that there are also, you know, ecosystems that are just kind of naturally more open woodland conditions. You know, I think about like oak stands um, and, and those have kind of, many of those with just a lack of disturbance and a lack of fire have kind of filled in with more shade tolerant species and those canopy conditions have, have closed. And, and from, a, from an ecological standpoint, we're oftentimes thinking about opening those canopies up and, and kind of reducing the stocking on them. And, and that's because it, you know, there's a lot of other non-carbon benefits that we're, we're doing that kind of management from. So, so where we have some of those open canopy conditions um, where that's appropriate to that forest type, you know, I wouldn't suggest that, there, that we should be going in and, and doing you know, some enrichment planting in those places just to get more carbon when, when we kind of want to keep those open conditions for other reasons. Todd, I'm glad you used the term degraded. And it's, it's one that many of us use from time to time when we're talking about some condition of these stands that we presume need our help. Um, I want to pick at that term a little bit. Um, one, because there's, there's some hidden judgments that a lot of us have in our minds when we use it. You know, one, one connotation, a, a colleague pointed out to me using the term degraded soils. Uh, we were writing a book chapter. Well, you were an author on that book chapter too. We were writing a, a book chapter about soil carbon management and we referred to degraded soils in the tropics. And our, our colleague Erica pointed out how much of a cultural pejorative that is <laughs> to suggest that we know best how um, you know, thousands of years of agriculture in the tropics should manage their soils. So I, I just wanted to pick at the term degraded for that reason, but also because as you were speaking to, if degraded is indeed a condition for a forest, let's ask why 
Is it deer brows? Was it regeneration failure because the, the desired future species is maybe not the right species for that site anymore? If we ask why, um, then that gets us more towards a solution. Does this stand need to be uh, planted with additional stocking? Um, are we thinking like so many in terms of remote sensing and satellite technology that picks up on so-called understocked forest land that is in fact magnificent Northern Highlands pine barrens that should just, uh, you know, if anything, perhaps be a little bit thinned out. I saw a picture a couple of years ago of uh, an afforestation happening and I recognized it was on beach grass. It was on some sort of a Great Lakes coastal dune ecosystem. Does that need to be stocked with trees or should we perhaps be thinking of a different set of ecological functions aside from just getting more wood on every acre of the state or the region? I think that's really important from Wisconsin's context when I think about the why of the degraded. So we have stands that are degraded because of past harvesting practices from deer, from overgrazing. And in those contexts, maybe those woodlands could be considered understocked and some type of enrichment planting is really a valuable yeah, tool. Yeah. But then we also have lots of examples of these open forest systems, oak woodlands, as you pointed out, big pine barrens, um, all of those where actually we may want to go in the other direction for a whole bunch of other ecological reasons. So again, that context is really important. Yeah. I, I'm, and I'm curious on this one. I, I'm curious. So if we, if we had a, if we narrowed it down, and I love that idea, you know, that we narrow it down to identify those sites where maybe it's appropriate that we want to put more trees in. Do we have ways of judging? So then we still have to decide, do we really want to do it here versus like another site? Do we have ways of judging like that carbon gain potential versus it's degraded already? There might be a really big cost to try and bring it back from, or not degraded, but you know, it's, it's had some past misuse. Is there a way to to balance out, here's how much carbon I would get versus here's what it's really going to take to get that carbon. No, it it is a it is tough. I think to kind of predict what what's going to happen and and the and the cost. I think cost is a big deal and 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 in real like dollars because depending upon what your your issues that you're trying to correct and if herbivory is one of those. I keep going back to deer herbivory, but um, it is something that I think a lot of people are kind of grappling with. What's a, what's a cost-effective way to, to deal with deer herbivory at scale? You know, I can, I can put tree tubes on the, on the dozen trees that I planted, you know, in my backyard. Um, and that's fine for me as a, as, as a, a small property owner. But, you know, when you're thinking about, uh, uh, several hundred acres or more, you know, what's a cost-effective approach to, to making sure that your investment in, in seedlings um, isn't just eaten up by deer. And so that's a real big issue. Um, you know, fencing is very expensive. It's difficult to maintain. Three tubes can be equally expensive um, and, and have a host of other issues as well. And um, and so that's, there's just no real easy answer on how to, how to deal with that. Um, but as long as you can, you know, address some of those constraints to, to tree growth, I think that the carbon benefits come, come down to 
how many, you know, how many trees can you get in the ground and, and get kind of past uh, browse height? And, uh, and then, you know, as long as there's sunlight for them, they're, they're probably going to do well and sequester carbon. And you're going to see carbon benefits. We're going to go next to Luke. You already mentioned the soil aspect of all of this. And at least here in our temperate forest is a huge pool of carbon. Um, that we have to deal with. Are there ways um, that we can um, modify our silviculture or management to maybe at least reduce our impacts to the carbon in that pool? You know, what's, what's important to consider around management there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, soils are a really important part of ecosystem carbon in the lake states. I think the the least that soils are is half of ecosystem carbon and that's on on sandy soils that just don't store a whole lot but where you can you know over time get some tree growth some tree biomass but if you're on on a till plane or certainly on any kind of a wet site that has uh, maybe hydric soils or peatlands you're looking at three-fourths, 90% on peatlands of ecosystem carbon is under your feet. Mm. And of course, of those three examples, your, your sandy outwash, your till plain or moraine type intermediate sites, and, and then the, the wetlands, hydric soils, you know, very different management considerations that foresters are well used to thinking about. There are carbon considerations that fall right into those. Um, in general, Good soil management is good soil carbon management, you know, limiting the aerial extent of your physical disturbance. You know, Wisconsin still has a good climate for winter harvesting. You know, that's changing fast, but there's a lot of parts of even the NIAC's 20 state northeast footprint where winter harvest as an option, frozen ground harvests, harvesting on snowpack is just not reliable anymore. So thing number one that folks already think about is how to keep tracks and tires off the ground. That's, it can, that could be snow, uh, it could be residue mats, armoring of forwarder trails. Um, these are good tactics to use from a soils perspective. They're also not the only things that are changing soil carbon with harvesting. There's the direct physical impacts from where machines run. Those are easy to see, but there are more subtle, let's say, ecological changes to how soils work that happen where no tires have passed. Um, the, the other 85% of the harvest unit that has not had any vehicle traffic on it. Um, you've still profoundly increased soil temperature uh, in Wisconsin's climate. In the Lake States, we get uh, elevated soil moisture for a couple years after a harvest. You take away all those leaves that are sucking away water and sending it up to the atmosphere. So the soil gets warmer and wetter. Uh, and that explains at least some of the, the decrease in, in surface litter that we often see after a harvest. You, you no longer have those annual uh, drops of leaf litter fall. Um, you've got a warmer, wetter soil surface that accelerates decomposition. So Another thing that can be done in terms of residues is, is using residues to, to cover areas of disturbed ground. Uh, if you see mineral soil uh, in a place where it was not before, 
um, and you're an operator, drop some tops, drop some limbs on top of that. Keep that ground shaded, keep it cooler. Um, that's going to have water cycle benefits because you're protecting that exposed mineral soil from erosion. Um, and it's going to have carbon benefits because some of that slash is going to move into the soil over time. Uh, and in the meantime, it's going to shade the soil. In a large part, what you can expect in Wisconsin or the lake states in general is depending your, your carbon impacts, your soil carbon impacts are going to depend on what you're beginning with. It's, we've kind of hammered on this point that sites differ in important ways. Um, we at NIACS have done work summarizing the very extensive history of research in the lake states on soils, soil impacts, forest management. And we find that sandy uh, and intermediate textured outwash plains are places where soil carbon losses are more likely. Wetter sites, uh, lacustrine plains, peatlands, these are places that probably increase soil carbon after harvesting. And then if you're on sort of an intermediate mesic site, a till plain or that's not too wet or, or a moraine of some sort, probably no change. So we're trying to get people to begin to set their expectations for how likely are soil carbon changes depending on where I am. Uh, and then once you're thinking about that, uh, what to do about it largely follows from things that people know already about how you manage residues, about how you protect soils, things like that. Is that, is that reason for those greater losses in those outwash sands because of that increase in temperature and decomposition that you're talking about or is it other factors yeah that's a great question and i wish i knew for sure the answer i think probably you're right um you know with the way that we do this research we often don't know how we don't know how or why we just know what mm. um and just knowing what is a big improvement over you know just 10 years ago um, one could just say well let's just assume soil carbon doesn't change it's the big pool but all of our impacts are on the vegetation. And there was no clear answer um, in general or for specific types of, of landscape settings or regions, there was no clear answer. My guess is your guess in outwash plains, sandy soils don't have much inherent capacity to, to stick soil organic matter. You know, all those decomposed roots, and leaf litter, leachates, the, the stuff that moves yeah. down in spring snowmelt, those are really good at sticking to clay particles. They're really good at hanging around if there's a lot of wetness in the soil. That's why peatlands are what they are. But sand just isn't good at storing organic mm -hmm. matter. So when you boost up the conditions for microbes, for bacteria and fungi that do decomposition, uh, when you make it warmer and wetter, they are happy to eat up that soil carbon that is there. That would be my explanation. You well. know what I'm struggling with a little bit with this is sometimes uh, for some of our forest systems, we're actually trying to disturb the soil. Um, yeah. So when we're thinking about growing things like jack pine forest, for example, we're looking at scarification or with oak, we're looking at burning. So we're putting in disturbance to expose soil, to get seed beds that are conducive to that species. How do we balance that with uh, 
the carbon potential carbon loss of that. Yeah, well, I think that's there you are coming at it again from your site. You're working with the site, and carbon isn't the only thing we think about. Pine barrens, they're supposed to have little soil carbon. These are not the places where we should be thinking about maximizing soil carbon. Mm -hmm. You got to get through that carex layer if you want to reestablish the jack pine. Um, scarification is really helpful if you're trying to regenerate birch or cherry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are places where um, that temporary reduction in soil carbon is probably secondary or, or less compared to your other ecosystem goals. Um, if you're thinking about prescribed fire, the evidence in the lake states shows that you get a small intended reduction in your, your duff, your forest floor, the organic horizon, those surface fuels, leaf litter, twigs, things like that. That prescribed burning is good for what it does, but that's reducing surface fuels, exposing mineral soils. The organic horizon is a small fraction of total soil carbon in any uh, of the soils that we have in Wisconsin or the lake states. And in fact, uh, in a lot of cases, we see increases in the carbon held down deeper in the mineral soil. Uh, the conversion of leaf litter to, to charcoal, of twigs to charcoal. Charcoal is, is pretty good at hanging around. Uh, compared to a fresh, tasty leaf as far as a fungus is concerned. So when we do prescribe burning, we often see you know, a loss of forest floor carbon, organic horizon carbon, I mean, uh, and an increase in subsoil, mineral soil carbon, to the tune of really no net change over time in total soil carbon. Um, so that's an example where prescribed burning um, is probably not soil carbon negative. And if you think over a long time scale about wanting to move that oak woodland in a more climate adapted pyrophilic direction, better for the warmer, drier climate that we're seeing more of and anticipating more of in the future, prescribed burning is probably very carbon positive. Yeah, Greg. And I think just to add on to, to what Luke was saying there, I think your question uh, that you asked about, you know, sort of how do we, how do we kind of think about carbon um, and the impacts when, when we're doing things like disturbing the soil for other benefits. Um, it really speaks to the thing that I, I hope everybody sort of recognizes is that there's, there's always going to be trade-offs in, in all of the management that we take. And sometimes there's going to be carbon, you know, there's going to be trade-offs to carbon in order to, to get some of these other ecosystem benefits. And so, you know, as Luke was saying, we, we, you know, we want, we might want to be disturbing the soil for regeneration of certain species. And, and, you know, as long as we recognize that where the trade-offs exist, then we're, then we're making those decisions with the intention. You know, we, we know what we're doing here. We, we are accepting that there might be a little bit of a carbon loss to the system, but the benefits, um, we've decided outweigh that loss. And, and, and so that, I think that's just really part of just getting comfortable with kind of understanding carbon impacts from all of our management decisions. It's just recognizing where the trade-offs exist and, and, and making those decisions knowing that, um, that we are accepting that trade-off and that's okay. Yeah, and it's interesting, Todd, I think in this whole thing with the with soil, so maybe it's like you mentioned the intentionality 
like, you know, what are we doing about it? But for me, it's just even recognition of the opportunities and maybe constraints with this, because I don't know, and Greg, maybe you've seen it, but I don't know if I've ever seen anybody talk about management of, of carbon and soil as a part of a timber sale, as a part of forest management, because I don't think we've really had that recognition that we actually have a huge impact on that. So even just internalizing that and saying, okay, just being careful about that as you go forward might be really important. Not yeah. having all the answers yet, but just being able to at least think about that. Yeah, I think we look, we have traditionally looked at these things from other perspectives. So soil, we've looked at it from an erosion standpoint and a surface water quality standpoint. But I think it's very valuable to sit here and think about what the carbon implications are also and just how to balance. That's another um, objective that we have uh, in managing these forests. So yeah. alignment with other reasons for why you're doing things, uh, alignment of carbon with other reasons for doing things is a theme that we return to again and again in NIACS. You know, soils aren't just a problem. It's not just, oh, we have to avoid rutting them up in wetlands. No, you're probably going to gain soil carbon in wetlands. So do an especially good job of armoring them or doing harvest only with, with uh, good frozen ground. Conversely, sandy outwash soils, usually thought of as a anywhere, anytime kind of uh, harvesting season they're actually kind of vulnerable to soil carbon loss. So pay a little bit more attention to how you're leaving the residue on the site. Uh, those are things, residue management, um, attention to, to wet operating conditions. These are already part of people's thinking out there in the woods, but there's carbon connections to both of those and more. Well, Luke and Todd, you uh, warned us earlier on uh, that, uh, that, we're still developing our knowledge around uh, the carbon impacts uh, in silviculture and there aren't always clear answers. But one thing that I'm gonna take away from this conversation is like many things in silviculture, the importance of site assessment. Um, what are your particular conditions? As you yeah. said, Luke, your starting conditions that you're dealing with. And then what are your objectives? And maybe carbon is one of those. And then thinking, okay, um, how can I make all of these things, as you said, align together, mesh together um, to sort of meet multiple objectives. So it's just gonna make me think a lot harder when I'm developing those prescriptions. Brilliantly said, easier said than done. Exactly, yeah. it just made my job harder, but <laughs> yeah. you know, hey, job security. Yeah. The I think the one the one thing I'd add to that list, and and it's really just kind of I think an asterisk on the site assessment is is just you know which we've kind of hammered on here a lot as well in some of our responses to these questions is just thinking about the future risk as well, and you know the site assessment gives you an idea of what the future risks are with changing climate conditions. Mm -hmm. I think this is great advice. I think this is something everybody can use. I hope so. We got our work cut out for us, every yeah. one of us. Yeah. I I do out of both of you in the future want more specifics. Give me specifics. <laughs> I want numbers, but no. Um I will be thinking a lot harder. So I, I appreciate and and thank you both for coming on and, and talking through this. Great conversation, guys. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having us on.
Yeah, a great time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Another great conversation in the books, Brad. I hope you feel like I do after these last two episodes we've done on forest carbon, a little bit more prepared uh, to talk about these issues and how they relate to our silviculture. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Now, you need to sit down, Greg. You look a little pale. And I get, you know, I've got just the thing for you. A big oh. bowl of venison and beans. All right. The lunch special, the scrubber. I can't wait. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. Remember that continuing education credits are available. Check out the Silvacast website. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freider, producer, Noah LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Freider, and of course, UW Stevens Points, Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs>